Hello and welcome to Inside the Squad, a community outreach podcast brought to you by the Lafayette Police Department in Lafayette, Indiana. Inside the Squad is hosted by Lieutenant Scott Galloway and Specialist Shauna Wainscott of the Community Outreach and Crime Prevention Unit within the department. We discuss all topics related to the day-to-day operations of the Lafayette Police Department, and we feature interviews with officers and other public safety personnel who want to give you an inside look at law enforcement. Our goal is that you find this podcast interesting and informative, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Inside the Squad podcast. This is your look at what's going on at the LPD. We have with us today Lieutenant Brian Gossard and Specialist Shauna Wainscott. Today we uh, do not have, but um, want to recognize Tom Melville and Alan Schwab as our producers. Uh, they're at an IT conference. And we are directed by City Marketing Coordinator Patty Payne, and I'm Lieutenant Scott Galloway, and we are inside the squad. So uh, just real quick, um, our topic today is going to be crime patterns, and can we better predict crime? What you need to know. So we want to welcome our special guest, Steve Hawthorne. He's a crime analyst here at the police department. And welcome back, Chief Pat Flannelly. Real quick here, I'll toss to Brian. Um, Brian, what's going on with you today? Oh, not uh, a whole lot. We're recording in a new a new place. We're over in the city hall uh, council chambers instead of our matchbox um, little room over there. And uh, I guess a lot of it depends on if we have IT support and uh, to set up our rig over there and uh, scheduling. So. And we don't have the free coffee, right? That's right. That's right. And we also have uh, Shauna. What's been going on with you lately, Shauna? Well, lately I've been going out to, I've been invited to several apartment complexes. We've been going out there and talking to them about just general crime prevention, safety stuff. And then they've been providing me feedback of what's been going on in the apartment complexes, if they've had any problems. And we've talked about reporting crime and to not let it go and to make sure that we know about what's going on in their apartment complex instead of them keeping it inside the apartment complex itself. Other than that, um, I've hosted a Rad Kids. I was out at the Casa Ride with my uh, new vehicle, my new Subaru. Uh, we did the National Night Out, and we've done a couple of drug takebacks. Busy calendar. And so uh, real quick before we start our conversation, I wanted to talk to Steve a little bit and just introduce who he is and his job description. So Steve, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what brings you here and, and what you do inside the police department. Well, as, as you said, I'm a crime analyst, so I analyze crimes. Uh, I use statistical packages to forecast when and where crimes will occur and uh, possible uh, suspects that may be involved in those crimes. That way we can be proactive and uh, to help prevent crimes from occurring. How long have you been at the police department? I've been here for about six years now. Okay. Well, welcome and thanks for helping us with our podcast today. And um, the first question right off the bat is I'll give to the chief. Why do we talk about crime numbers? Why do we care about these things? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and it's probably one of the most frequently discussed uh, topics when it comes to policing in America today, crime numbers, uh, in particular violent crimes. And really what it boils down to in the the question is, is my community and if do I feel safe, and if not, why not? And if so, why do I feel safe? And so really, uh, we, we talk about this frequently inside the police department, but our job here at the Lafayette Police Department is to, is to ensure that people feel safe moving freely about the city to do the things that they want to do, uh, whether it's walking the dog around the block, if it's going to the grocery store, uh, sending the kids to the mall, 
uh, doing the things that we all want to do every day. And, and do, the big question is, are we safe in doing that? And do we feel safe in doing that? So uh, crime numbers are an important uh, part of, of what we do because they help give us a benchmark and they give us an idea of, of how we're performing uh, in terms from one year to the next and, and then over time and then really in comparison to uh, other cities around the country. So at the same time, while those numbers can be beneficial to us and they can help us uh, strategize and they can help us determine how we're going to utilize our resources, they can also be incredibly tricky and really, really uh, misleading. A lot of times, I think uh, from the public's perspective, we oftentimes put too much value on what the data and what the number tells us. Uh, because sometimes numbers don't really tell the whole story. They only tell a fraction of the story. And it's really, uh, it's really up to us to kind of dive down into that to understand uh, what the difference is. And so thanks for Steve for being here to help us unpack that. And, and Steve, a question, question for you right off the, the bat here is, are there predictors to, say, violent crimes? Not particularly. Violent crimes are usually, uh, they're, of course, between people. Uh, as opposed to the property crimes, which are much easier to forecast and uh, predict what's happening with those. Um, violent crimes usually, well, like uh, our aggravated assaults, those are our highest violent crime, okay? And they, we have, that's about 72% of our uh, violent crimes are these type. And uh, an aggravated assault is where somebody inflicts bodily injury on somebody else. Most of those occur... Um, by hands, fists, or feet. It's called a strong arm, okay? Uh, then the next one is typically an other dangerous weapon other than a knife or a firearm. So firearms are actually the lowest uh, aggravated assault uh, crime that we have. But they're probably the one that's the most reported, right? That's what people hear about most frequently. Exactly. And uh, most of our violent crimes... Like I said, they occur between acquaintances. Very few involve strangers themselves. Um, Ninety percent that of the assaults involving a gun usually begin with the perpetrator drinking alcohol or using drugs, followed by an argument that concludes in a shooting. That's how it gets headed. It people get heated and they decide to solve that argument with a weapon. Those that involve uh, the other weapons, the knives, hands, blunt instruments, things like that, are typically domestic issues. So between spouses usually. So you really can't predict violent crime. It's they occur within houses and inside residences where police don't see this. We just get a report of it. That always you know, leads to a follow-up question. And who determines what, a, what an assault is? How do we, how do we report that? And how do, how do we ensure, keyword here, uniformity across agencies and states on determining how these crimes are reported. The police departments, uh, 18,000 police departments across America, we report to uh, the FBI, the Uniform Crime Report, uh, which is a, a, the best attempt that we had to try to create a standard for how crimes are reported so we can measure what's happening. Uh, that's a, it's a voluntary uh, process. Uh, in, in the next coming years, we're going to be coming to an end of the UCR, and we're switching over to... Uh, a new crime reporting system system called NIBRS. And again, that's a, just an, another effort to try to create some, some uniformity. So uh, some of the things that Steve's talking about here on these, on these aggravated assaults and stuff, that's, that's part of what we would call a part one crime. 
it's a violent crime, and that, that's what you see in the headlines. Violent crimes up, violent crimes down. One um, question about predictors. So could you say that it's a predictor if the people you surround yourself with are involved in drugs and alcohol, that you are a better chance of having being a victim of a violent crime? Oh, yeah, the likelihood is, is far there. The, the alcohol and drugs vary your brain waves, and uh, people are now carrying weapons more to for protection or to influence others, and uh, they were result, they're resulting in going towards those. So as a crime prevention strategy, it might be a better option, too, if you see somebody using drugs or alcohol, stay away completely from those people. Well, that, or if you're in, in with a group of friends in a house and you've been drinking or partying and somebody starts getting agitated, I would get out, especially if you know they're carrying a gun. My question is for the, the chief as far as, and I think we talked about this a little bit uh, in our first podcast episode when we went over all the, the crime numbers from last year, but uh, kind of in our line of work, talk about the 80-20 rule, the 90-10 um, that that small population accounting for a lot of what we do. When you're a police officer, when you're a young police officer, one of the first things that you begin to understand in those first couple of years is that uh, you tend to return to the same locations uh, for very similar type incidents surrounding the same people. And quickly you begin to realize that you know, just in general math terms, about 80 to 90 percent of our workload is really concentrated in in 10 to 20 percent of of either in streets or with with groups of people. Strategies in identifying who are the problem people and where are the problem areas are now what's really kind of um, you know, when we say we're returning to the uh, more community-oriented policing uh, philosophy in, in America, that's really what we're talking about is, is identifying uh, w- where the problems are and then getting there and trying to get the information as quick as you can to, to solve and intervene the problem. Um, where, whereas I think in a period of time the, the strategy might have been arrest, uh, it might have been in domestic cases it might have been separation, uh, we, we've learned a lot over the last uh, really 20 to 30 years about what works and what doesn't work. I mean, we're n- nowhere near having it all figured out, but I think we, we've come a long way in understanding that there are intervention strategies and there are multiple uh, stakeholders that can assist law enforcement agencies and the criminal justice system in solving problems. And a lot of the offenders and victims have a lot in common. Um, so age is one of those um, you know, f- factors that is, is very prevalent through offenders. We, the, you have a high crime years uh, section of uh, most people's lives, uh, 16 to 25 is uh, a, big, a big one that you know, people c- tend to commit more crime in that age bracket. Can you talk about the, the victims and... Um, kind of the rate of victimization, uh, repeated offenses, um, and how that relates to what we do. Having a, a couple of teenagers in the house myself now, we have a conversation around the house. We call that the dog brain, and I know that's not a, a term that I've, I've coined myself, but I, I like to use it because I think it's a really good indicator. The, 
uh, you know, science now tells us that really the, the prefrontal cortex in the human brain isn't, and especially in males, isn't really developed fully until ages 23 to 25. Uh, and there's a lot of things going on in that brain in, in those formative years. So we, we tend to, to not to use the if-then part of the brain, like if I do this action, then this will be the result or the consequence. It's, a, it's more of a reaction. So uh, there are things that we, that we do to try to, uh, to help with that, but I, I, think it's, I think you bring up a really good point in that um, a lot of our work does involve uh, juveniles in, in the, from that 12 to 16 age and then young adults in that 16 to 24 range. So uh, identifying strategies that can help uh, maybe uh, steer kids in the right direction at an earlier time or identify potential problems, I think, uh, have, have some significant long-term benefits. Uh, one of those programs, again, probably be another, uh, an episode for another podcast. We could bring uh, Rebecca Humphrey on and talk about all of her outstanding work and the uh, programs that we're involved with now in Policing the Teen Brain, where we run our police officers through a program where they, they can learn uh, what the physiology of, of a teenage brain is and, and why they might do some of the things that they do. And, and so we can create some strategies to help uh, maybe deflect uh, some of the things that we see and then really steer people into, into the right resources at the right time. And I think, you know, I think our, just our, our juvenile arrest numbers alone in this county have, have been uh, dropping significantly over the past, really particularly the past seven years. But um, it, it, I think a lot of that is in part to, again, us understanding how to, how to uh, direct people to the right resources at the right time and having people that, that, are, uh, that are actively looking for these types of solutions. Yeah, early intervention seems to be the key with the uh, juveniles and not necessarily intervention from us, but um, somewhere they could get help that they need to you know, help them outgrow that, the, the prime crime years. Yeah, and that, you know, and that that brings us back to that that question. A lot of times, the uh, from where we talked about at the beginning, what are the pol- what what are the police doing to solve the crime problem in our community? And that's a, that's a question that's asked in communities all over the country. It's not just here, um, and we certainly have a significant role in that. But the one thing that I like to say is, you know, what are we doing as a community to help? solve these problems because by the time the police get involved in a lot of these activities that we're, we're way downstream there, these are problems that have been brewing, uh, in homes and in schools, uh, and in communities for a long time before there's ever police involvement. And, and so now, uh, when, when the police are engaged in trying to solve some of these problems, uh, the, you know, there's a there's a, a reflexive response from most people that hey, just arrest them, put them in jail, throw them in juvenile detention. Um, th- that that's the solution, uh, quick and easy, no problem. Why are we even having this conversation? But I think you know, time and uh, and data and research has has shown us that that's maybe not necessarily the only solution. It certainly is is an appropriate solution in in many cases, but there are. A lot of ways to uh, skin the cat, so to speak, and and that's and that's where I think uh, modern policing has taken us. 
you know, the police and law enforcement as a whole and the justice system, we don't we have limited powers to control crime itself. Uh, it's really pretty much com- the community who decides what's acceptable behavior. Um, if they're if the com- society allows people to misbehave, then your crimes are going to be higher. If they start controlling it themselves and limiting uh, bad behavior, then crime's going to be very low. You know, so it's. A lot of it as a whole is society and communities have to control the crime for themselves. Uh, to piggyback on that, uh, more of a global analysis, have Steve or the chief, would you comment or have information or think about is criminal behavior natural in society? So throughout time, there's been, there's been crime in, in modern societies. And um, is that something that's just going gonna, gonna to happen? And how do we limit that? Or is... Is there a way to limit that? If there's going to be crime, people are going to commit crimes. Is there a way to limit that? Or do you have any statistics on the propensity of crime throughout society? Certainly crimes occur throughout history, and they're going to continue to occur. Um, The level of the crime or the severity of the crime um, fluctuates all the time. I mean, violent crime here in Lafayette is only usually less than 10% of our crimes that, that are reported to us and that we address. Um, and our highest year over the last seven years was a couple of years ago for the first six months. And um, we've actually been, our violent crimes have actually been reducing the last two or three years uh, based on what's been reported to us. But again, violent crimes, they're, they're so rare and infrequent that you don't see a typical pattern with them. Um, they come and go. And so uh, not like property crimes where we know property crimes increase during the warmer months of the year and then they fall off in the winter times. Um, that's a very well-known pattern throughout the United States in all cities uh, where violent crime is very infrequent, uh, rarely occurs in comparison to other crimes and to the property crimes. So you have to really ask yourself, are you, have you ever been victimized by a violent crime? Or do you even know anyone that's been victimized by a violent crime compared to a property crime. Um, I think very few people are going to be able to say yes to those answers or to those questions. I think maybe, uh, was there something that you want to add to that, Lieutenant Galloway? I think maybe you were, you, you were talking about Gavin DeBecker and some of his Yeah, and, his I, and I recently listened to a, a podcast with Gavin DeBecker. He wrote the uh, great book, The Gift of Fear. And and science does tell us that there will always be people that will commit certain heinous crimes, murders, rapes, things like that. So is there a way to even stop those? If there's going to happen behind closed doors, you know, is early intervention an op- option for that? Or how do we stop that if it's going to happen? Um, we obviously don't want it to, but you're never going to get rid of all the violent crimes. Well, again, it's police can't control an individual. There's no way. Uh, and like I said, most of the violent crimes occur between acquaintances. And the police aren't there, and violent crimes are an instantaneous crime. It happens quickly, and there's not enough police to be in every situation to prevent that. And people uh, wouldn't want that, right? right. People don't want a police Again, their, society their has to control that type of behavior. Don't put yourself in a situation where it could get violent. Well, and so for, I guess, a good, uh, maybe a, a contradiction to that might be in the case of, domestic violence. And we've learned a lot about domestic violence. And that's why I think our laws have progressed um, through the legislative process over the years based on what we've learned, um, that one of the things that we need is is information. And and we've actually changed 
uh, laws uh, across the country that, uh, particularly in regards to domestic violence, where where it used to be uh, police officers going to home where there's been where there's been violence, and uh, the solution was maybe the husband uh, goes to the neighbor's house or goes to a friend's house. Um, wife stays in the house with the kids, or maybe the wife leaves with the kids, or you, know, you can kind of play out those scenarios, and then, you know, the next day everybody will be fine. Well, we realize that, you know, there's, that's not the best solution. It's not even close to the best solution, and that we need to be, understand what our role is in that situation, and that's where I think, uh, uh, you know, a great benefit to, to data and, and research has, has helped us. So in cases like that now, we're where the police had some discretion on whether they would make an arrest or not make an arrest. I mean, there's now cases where the police shall make an arrest, where there are things that we we must do rather than that we might do. And in those cases, you know, we do have the opportunity to, I think, prevent future violence from happening. And I think that, you know, when we talk about the future of our kids and, and those types of things, you know, violence that ha that occurs in the home is probably one of our greatest predictors for uh, a tendency for a person to engage in violence in the future, you know, if, if, and it's a uh, people, you know, become a part of their environment. So we, you know, while we may not be able to predict stranger type of violence, uh, I think there are cases where we do have excellent opportunities to intervene and maybe change uh, f future paths and, and future outcomes. And, and we've gotten a lot better at that. So getting back to uh, some of the data um, and statistics, you know, people try to put a lot of numbers together to you know, make a point or a case. And we've seen that over the years of people trying to um, use statistics within the city of Lafayette and compare the city to other cities you know, in Indiana, in the Midwest, even across the, the nation. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of the, the things people may not see um, when they read an article online or in print um, about, you know, we're put a number on it that eight yeah, this, this, worst these, city in the these are the, always the, the great conversations the because uh, you know sometimes it can be uh, very humorous and sometimes it can be really frustrating. I've I've been uh, pounding down the hall to Steve's office a couple times looking for some data on how. Or how is this research being conducted? Because you see these, I mean, that's the question all the time uh, is, you know, what the top 10 most dangerous cities in America or the top 10 safest cities? Uh, and how do we measure that and how do we determine it? And, you know, we've had some of these, uh, you know, the, the stories that have gone here where, you know, it shows Lafayette. Uh, there was one that actually showed that Indianapolis was a safer city than Lafayette. Um, and, and so when, when you're sitting here looking at people trying to compare apples to oranges, uh, you know, th that's where it can be incredibly frustrating. And I, I know uh, I had Steve contacting one of the, uh, one of the uh, I, I'm, we don't, I guess we don't need to say which one it was, but um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't reveal their research methods to us. I don't know if you want to comment on that, Steve. No, they did. A lot of these uh, people use their own algorithms, they're called, uh, where they the numbers in they weight certain crimes with a more depending on what the message they're trying to get across they actually put weighting factors onto the crimes of that they think are important and then they run them through their own little uh, equations and come up with a number and they won't reveal those equations to anybody 
They keep them to themselves. So uh, it's the first class I took in statistics. My professor says, statistics, you can lie with them any way you want. You can twist numbers around any way to get what you want to say across, and you can lie with them. And it's very frustrating to know that or have that in the field and always be challenged on your numbers. So I, I just try to put them out as straight as they can be and say, here they are. So, uh, so these, uh, these other people, they're not telling you how they're putting their thumb on the scale. No, to, to, no, they, they won't case. tell you the, the weights, what factors they're using for weighting factors, how much, you know, one crime versus another could be 10 points in their scale versus in somebody else's scale it could be minus points. You know, it all depends on what they're trying to get across as they ought to their audience. So in trying to compare cities and some of those recent articles uh, that have been, and it's not, not just here locally, but, you know, in national publications where they're talking about the homicide rates in major metropolitan areas, which, you know, they are you know, homicide rates in 2016 and first six months of 2017 are up uh, compared to uh, the previous 20 years. I mean, and some significant in in increases in major metropolitan areas. So one of the things that I, th I found that was interesting, and maybe Steve can comment on this, how, how is it that in, in one article uh, we read that, you know, like for, in, for example, we're right in, almost right in between the city of Chicago and the city of Indianapolis. And so there are influences in our community on, you know, on crime from those areas, but we're not those areas. And so while there may be some things that, that interplay here, uh, when, we're, when we're trying to decide whether your city is safe or whether your neighborhood's safe, um, and we can start comparing cities, I mean, is it really fair to compare Lafayette to Indianapolis to Chicago? Is it fair to compare Indianapolis to Chicago? Um, and every city, I think, is different. But in in some of these lists, we saw where Lafayette, in one of those lists, was the top, you know, we were one of the top 10 most dangerous cities. Um, and then I look at another list, and Indianapolis, I think, was the fourth safest city to live in Indiana. But yet, Marion County, in itself, data shows that the homicide rates in, in Marion County are up significantly in the last two years. Matter of fact, uh, one of the uh, top 10 counties for increase in homicide rates. So how do we have, how do we balance this juxtaposition of, you know, violent crime rates and what's safe and what's not safe? I have a sister that lives in, in Indianapolis. So if I read that uh, in one hand, Indianapolis, the murder rate is, is skyrocketing, but then on the other hand, it says it's it's the fourth safest city in Indiana to live. If, if Indianapolis is the four, the fourth safest city, um, you know, yeah, it's it's almost impossible to compare one city's crime versus another because there's so many factors that contribute to crime that aren't measured and aren't reported, and just a, a city across across a river from you. You can't compare those two because those cities are different. Their makeup is different. Their profiles and characteristics are all different, so their crimes are going to be different. And, uh, you know, again, you don't know what goes behind the numbers. Are they even looking at, are they using property crimes along with violent crimes when they're reporting these? And are property crimes, like here, 90% 
of the crimes that are reported. And of those, theft is the biggest one. And of that, shoplifting is the biggest one. So if your crime numbers are all based off of all those things, shoplifting is what's driving your numbers. Is that a safe community? I don't know. So you really, you just, you just can't look at an article that says these are the safe cities or these are the worst cities because you just don't know how they came up with those numbers. It's just, it, it's, it's unfair to those cities, so, so either good have, or bad. So if you have a mall in one city and then your neighboring city doesn't have a mall, what, how is that going to affect our... Oh, the numbers or we can even say Walmart's, you know, I hate to... Sure. I'm not Any trying to big, call Walmart Big box stores our, are going to have more shop, shopping problems, shoplifting problems. Uh, there are no violent crimes usually at the malls. There might be a fight between some teenagers or something, but, uh, and somebody might get robbed in the parking lot, but very, very rarely do you have a violent crime at a mall, okay? But you have a huge amount of property crimes at it. So... Again, one city to another, they're all different, and you'd have to go through a list of probably 30 different things to match them equally before you even get to crime to compare a city one to another. And everybody loves a top 10 list. I mean, if you're going to see a top 10 list on social media, you're going to click on it just to see what's in the top 10. So, But you have to be careful about the motives of people putting these lists together. Um, are they just trying to sell houses or trying to spin their uh, commercial product or whatever? So good and bad of social media, those kind of things sp- spread quickly, but you also have access to other data sources that may may dispute those numbers. And real quick, Steve, you came from another department, right? Yes. Because I remember when you came here, you were actually kind of shocked about the crime here and how low it was from an outsider's perspective. Oh, yeah. I, I came from a uh, city on the, in the mid-Atlantic, and it had a rating of the fourth highest crime rate in Virginia. And I, I believe it because we had robberies, we had homicides, we had just muggings on a daily basis. And I came here and I went, oh, my gosh, what a difference. And I go, there's no crime here. This is this is a for crime. It's a boring city for for a statistics for a statistician like I am. You know, I thrive on numbers, and there aren't any numbers here. So that's harder for you to do your job. To oh, it's very hard sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it it was a whole different world um, coming from a busy police department to one that is busy but in different factions. Um, the department here is more community oriented where the, the department that I came from was just total response to problems. And uh, they couldn't keep enough officers there. Uh, so so that, and that's, that brings up a great point. One, it's always great to hear you know, how safe we are compared to uh, maybe some other areas. And, and so if everything is relative, if you've, if you've grown up in Lafayette or West Lafayette uh, and you, in your first trip into New York City or downtown Chicago or a major metropolitan area, uh, like just last week, uh, my, my personal, my first trip into downtown Los Angeles, that was, um, it, it's a little bit different. Now, uh, as, as an outsider and as someone that's not familiar with the area, you know, Los Angeles, 
you know, in particular, certain areas of Los Angeles have a reputation for being dangerous, crime-ridden areas. Um, I walked downtown Los Angeles and never once uh, felt unsafe. I walked uh, uh, during early morning hours, late evening hours, walked to get something to eat, um, and I, I didn't have an issue. Now, am I a police officer? Do I see things maybe a little bit differently? Uh, does it bother me to, you know, be engaged by a, by a homeless person when I'm walking down the street? No, not really. Uh, where and you know that that can make somebody I certainly feel uh, maybe uncomfortable or maybe even some kind sometimes less safe. Now, does that mean if I hadn't if I had gone four blocks north or eight blocks north, if I was intimately familiar with the area, um, if I'd have gone into an area where maybe I didn't feel as safe? Sure, and and sometimes. But that's relative to anywhere that you go. Uh, you're, you feel comfortable uh, in the areas that you're most familiar with. And in places that you're not familiar with, you feel less comfortable. So that's where we look for information and data. What does this tell us? So when we start talking about and we make these comparisons, what neighborhood's safe, what neighborhood's not safe. Um, if I'm, my child is coming here to Purdue and I want them to live in downtown Lafayette, which neighborhood should they live in? I, we get that question a lot, and I'm sure you guys get it too. Uh, and, you know, my answer has been and always has been, uh, well, which one do you like? <laughs> Where do you want to live? What are the, some of the amenities that you prefer? Uh, because there's a lot of great areas to live uh, downtown that are right across the river and the neighborhoods that are by there. Uh, like Steve said earlier, does that mean that, you know, you might unfortunately uh, have some people that live in the house next door that are engaged in some activities that uh, that might – um, bring a, um, you know, some unsavory activity into the area. Sure, there, there's a chance of that, but there, but these neighborhoods are safe, and uh, you know the information that we get from people in those areas helps us solve those problems at, at at a quicker time. And the danger of that then is the perception that the, the public picks up on, and you've heard it and you've seen it across social media. Lafayette has changed. When I was a kid. Our parents would kick us out the door in the morning and we'd come back when the streetlights came on. It was safe and we could go trick-or-treating by ourselves. Now, with distance comes a little bit softer focus, but people continue to go back to that. And, you know, it was the golden years when I was a kid. Can you speak to that a little bit in the perception of the public? I, I talk about this all the time and I, that I would tell you that today it's, it's safer today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And the data is very clear on that. We may not feel that way, but that's what the data tells us. I mean, the, the rate of violent crime in America over the last 25 to 30 years, when you look historically and long-term, has dropped significantly. Uh, I mean, we're talking major drops. And, when, and we're not, I'm not, it's not even just the homicide rate, just it's, it's violent crimes in general. Uh, America's never been safer. But it certainly doesn't feel that way. And so the question then becomes, if it's safer, but I don't feel safer, what's causing that? Um, and, you know, we could, again, uh, we could probably have a really long discussion about this. But I think for us, I mean, the most people, if you look at what's changed the most in the last 10 years in society, and it's, it's, it's information, it's, and it's how we get our information and the rate at which it comes to us, it's astronomical, and I don't think that we've had sufficient time to really adjust to that all day long. As I've sat here, um, 
I've already gotten four messages to my phone while I'm sitting here uh, in, during this podcast. Some of it's about things that are going on in the city. It's fantastic. I've got information at my fingertips. Uh, the danger to that is, is that, man, it seems like, there's, man, there's always something going on. Well, is that different than it's ever been? No. Those things have always been happening. It's just now that I know about it right away. And so what's the advantage to that? I can make decisions based on real-time information and hopefully intervene in, in ways that are going to lead to more positive outcomes. What's the downside to that? Well, you know, maybe it's a, it's a feeling of being overwhelmed uh, that information is coming and that there is too much happening and that we, that we just can't handle all this. And, and so it's not just in our smartphones. It's everywhere. I mean, we've got, you know, 100 channels of 24-hour news. We're getting the push notifications to our phones. And we're on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, and, and things are coming at us all day long. And so, you know, and just it's the, the human mind it genetically is programmed to focus on the things that create the most amount of danger and risk to us. It's just the way we're just the way our DNA is based. You know, how, do, how am I going to survive and how am I going to navigate this landscape that I'm in? So it can come from a different, you know, you get multiple ways of getting that information, um, potentially crime information, and then you might get some confirmation bias. Maybe you had a neighbor that talked about his friend at work that got robbed or something, so now all of a sudden everything is going to happen to you. And so in crime prevention, we see that. Brian, I don't know if you remember noticing that when you were in crime prevention. Those would be a lot of the calls we'd get would be, that confirmation bias. Um, so, Brian, do you comment on that, what you saw in, in crime prevention? Well, uh, there were a lot of people that uh, would call in concerned for themselves, <clears throat> having not been a victim, but had read about it in the paper or watched it on TV. And um, there's a lot that doesn't get reported about the context involved in these crimes. So, we will put out information regarding a robbery and the context involved in this that we can't put out is that the person has a long history of drug use or drug dealing. Um, they have three outstanding cases going on about that same thing and they have a suspect or we, we know of a suspect that is probably involved in this as well that also has drug history. So what we think is that it was a, over a drug deal, a drug deal gone bad. Well, what gets reported is that there was just a robbery. We may have a suspect description, but people that are, you know, paying, t paying attention to the news, um, they, they will see that and say, Oh, am I next? Because, you know, they have those feelings of, fear if they're walking to their car at night and they will they will think back to the the robbery that they just read about and well I'm I'm about to get robbed. So those instances of just a stranger on stranger um crime and we talked about that a little bit is just extremely rare. Um but that's what that's what makes up the news. Yeah, I had somebody bring this up to me the other day that they were concerned about all the robberies that were occurring downtown that seemed like there was no correlation to the victims. And so, again, I asked that person, have you been a victim of robbery? And they're like, well, no, but I don't feel safe now going downtown. And so, again, we had to bring up this, you know, A, some of them already gotten, 
have been arrested. We don't know, I don't know the whole details if they're, you know, the same suspects in every single one of the robberies, but at the same time, I was like, you can't be afraid to go downtown because the chances of you being that victim are slim to none. So, you know, the media is obviously, they're going for those stories. There's been 10 robberies downtown or whatever the number was. But, you know, people are feeding off that information that the media is putting out and that perception. People read and listen to things of interest to them. And criminal acts are of interest. And the media... Newspapers want to sell their newspapers, so they're going to put stories out that people are going to read. How those people then infer that to their own lives, that's their decision. you know. And if they're just going to say, well, there's robberies going on, I'm going to be the next victim, that's not the right mindset, is that, you know, stay away from where the problems are going to probably occur. That's protect yourself. So sometimes the statistics don't tell the accurate picture, if, and you can play the, with the statistics however you want to tell the story how you want to tell it. Exactly, yeah. So, um, Chief, would you say, million-dollar question, that Lafayette is a safe place? Okay, you've t- touched on it before, but tell us if Lafayette's safe. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a safe city. It always has been. Um, now, when I say that, does that mean that there aren't problems in Lafayette. Absolutely not. There, I mean, I think uh, we're all aware of, of some of the issues that we're facing. I mean, uh, several years ago, uh, we had significant problems with methamphetamine. Um, now that, that problem has shifted towards prescription medications and opiates uh, to include heroin, and that drives a significant amount of our violent crime and our property crime. And, and uh, Brian touched on it a few minutes ago in that where the, the information that, that is reported to the public, you know, we're restricted on what we, what we can put out when we put it out. Uh, we can't say things that are going to negatively influence, you know, a person's guilt or in, innocence. And so for criminal justice and justice purposes, it, it's the right thing for us to do to limit the amount of information that we share that may, you know, potentially uh, yeah, have prejudicial influence over a jury someday. Uh, and so the, the, the phrase that I like to tell people all the time is that the wheels of justice do turn. They just turn at their own pace, and that pace is very rarely uh, in sync with what we as individuals want it, we, because that's what we're, you know, again, in this, in this 24-hour, you know, instant access to information we want to know and we want to know right now and if i if you're and and sadly now that that if if people don't get the information that they want when they believe individually they feel they should get it then they immediately jump to the conclusion that well if you're not telling me it's because you're hiding something and so there's you know sadly now a, a percentage of the population that immediately just assumes uh, the negative and that the, something's being covered up or something's being hidden. Uh, if they knew, they would say. And, and those are the, the things that tend to spread very quickly and virally on, on social media outlets. And, and so that goes back to uh, some of the things that we see. And, you know, what, what I might not be a victim of crime, but my neighbor was and they told me uh, or my friend was and they told me you know, and we we have this conversation all the time in, inside the police department. In that, you know, negative news just travels faster. Uh, great, you know, a great example of that person goes to a restaurant, 
They have tremendous service. The food is fantastic. You know, when they leave there, uh, they're likely to go out and tell four to seven of their closest friends about this tremendous experience that they had. Uh, they may or may not post it on social media. But that same person goes to a restaurant. They have poor service. Food's cold, something they don't like. Um, they're likely to go out and tell 15 to 20 of their closest friends, and they're going to share that information with anybody who will listen. And so that information spreads so quickly. Uh, and, 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 and so we, you know, understanding that as a police, as a police department, those are some of the things that, you know, we talk about all the time, even uh, within the advent of, of body cameras and, and instant access to this type of information. Uh, we know that, you know, if an officer is, if they are rude or if they're perceived to be rude on a traffic stop, you know, most people, you know, 90% of the population, their only contact with the police is, is in a, an exchange where maybe they've been involved in a traffic crash or they get stopped for speeding or something like that. And if they have a negative interaction with a police officer, they're going to go tell everybody. Uh, and, and most cops know it's, uh, you know, when your friends come up uh, or people that you know or acquaintances, there's, you know, there's, there's never a time where people are shy to share the story about that one cop, you know, that one guy that, that did that. So, you know, we understand that. So we have to, you know, we have to do our part into in, and recognize that, uh, that uh, you know, we can influence some of these things. And so it's really the same when it comes, you know, and Steve brought up a great point, you know, it's when it comes to our community, uh, making that decision and that determination about what we're going to tolerate and what we're not going to tolerate. And that's where all of us can make a big difference on the perception of crime and the reality of crime. Uh, the reality is, is that the likelihood of you being the victim of a violent crime in this city is, is, is virtually non-existent, um, you know, outside a fight in the home or something like that. Um, to, to walk down the street and get mugged, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, now, if you're dealing drugs... If you're hanging out with people that are using dealing drugs, um, if you're in an area where, like Steve said, those those types of people are congregating or they associate, then you know now those chances of, of you being a victim rise exponentially. And it's the same thing when it comes to to drugs. And you know, for those that are, you know, sadly that those that are maybe have a family member or a friend or someone that's that's has. Uh, an opiate addiction. I mean, they, they, they understand this better than anybody uh, that, you know, if, if you have a close family member or someone that's close to you, that the chances of you being a victim of theft are going to go up significantly. Uh, things around the home, cash, uh, iPads, phones, televisions, things, uh, those things are going to be stolen, medications out of the cabinets, and then, and then your friends and family. Uh, so those things can, you know, they can, um, they can really snowball quickly when you get to the, to the center of, of where some of those problems are. We, we want to make, make sure that people are aware that we are doing some things to um, both aid in the perception of, of what's going on and the reality, and that's the crime prevention unit. So really, you've invested a lot of effort, time, and resources into this unit that, that we are now occupy. So what's the future of this um, unit, and is it making an impact? I think it's having a tremendous impact in our community. Uh, we've dedicated four personnel uh, specifically for the task of community outreach and crime prevention. Um, you know, for those of us in that room, you know, uh, each of us have, have played a, a role in that.
we know that there are things that we can do to help reduce the victimization. So when, when Shanna's going out to, and, and talking to these apartment complexes and to community groups, we can bring with us data and we can bring with us suggestions on best practices, the things that you can do to uh, reduce the likelihood that you're going to be a victim of crime. You know, so this is where this is where social media and information and can have a tremendous impact. You know, we can crowdsource the positive, so to speak, in that we can share information about what works. How, what type of locks should we put on our doors? How do we, you know, should we lock our cars? How, how do we secure our homes? How do we light the area in which we're in which we're living. If we are going into an area that we're unfamiliar with, what are some of the things that we can do to, to help us feel safer? Uh, even if we may be completely safe, sometimes if you don't feel safe, then you, you, you might not go. And so these are the things that we want to educate people on so they can make the best decisions for themselves. And that, in, in that I think overall, it plays a tremendous role in, in, in just helping the perception. One, one, uh, one of our, uh, I think the biggest successes that we've had over the last few years is the growth and uh, the use of the social media platform nextdoor.com. Uh, we've been on that platform now for uh, five years. The growth over the last couple years has been significant. We want to see it continue to grow. And in a nutshell, the reason why it's so effective is because it's people sharing the right information. It gives us as a police department an opportunity to kind of connect with neighborhoods, but most importantly, it's a way for neighbors to connect with each other in a way that we did uh, 20 to 30 years ago. So, you know, when Patty talked about earlier the, the, those golden years, and uh, I think we'll all get to the golden years at some point, um, hopefully, society's just become a lot more transient in the last 20 to 30 years. We don't have core families and core neighborhoods like we used to where people know each other, where you look out and see, when you see your neighbors, you know them by name and you know what they do and you know what their hobbies are and you know who their friends are. You just know it instinctively, but now we don't. And, and Pew Research backs that up. I mean, most, I think it's less than 25% of Americans now can identify uh, one of their neighbors by name, or maybe it's all four of their neighbors. So the house across the street and the house is next to them. And so that's a problem. So when, when you have something that's wrong, something that occurs in the home, uh, what, do, you know, what do people do? You know, they're they're going to call someone that they think can help, and so typically that becomes the police. And so really the, you know, the, the challenge for us is, is the ability to manage resources in, in, a, in a society where the demand for our services have never been higher. The resources that are avail available, especially over the last 10 years, I mean, the, there was a significant economic downturn in this country, and a lot of the major metropolitan areas have, have really still have never recovered from that, where they've had to lay off police officers and, and public safety employees. You know, here in Lafayette, we've you know, we're very fortunate to have such a thriving community where we, you know, we were actually able to grow during those years, not, not retract. And so that, I think, has helped us maintain the level of safety that we've been able to maintain. It's that connection of neighbor to neighbor that makes the big difference, where people share information about what's going on. And so this is, this is where, we, where we come in and where we see our role in this is that if you're having a problem in your neighborhood, uh, you're going to cause maybe a bike theft or maybe uh, some, you see someone going through cars. It's some of the common things that, that people experience um, 
in in some in 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 most neighborhoods those types of things occur and and, and those the, they seem like little things really but if it's your car you wake up your window's been broken and something's been stolen i mean financially that's that's an issue for you i mean and personally it just kind of it it can erode your sense sense of safety and security and you just that that trust is violated and and if it's a burglary or, or someone enters your home then that just takes it to a whole nother level so what we're really looking to do is create those neighborhood connections where people can report that to us so we know, um, and then we have that information, and then they report that to their neighbors too. So everyone knows, hey, look, um, uh, my neighbor across the street, his house was uh, burglarized last night. Uh, maybe they saw something. Maybe they saw something in the neighborhood that didn't, uh, that didn't seem right, but they opted not to call. Well, they can begin to share that type of information. And the Pew Research tells us that when people create those digital connections uh, in those types of uh, circumstances, then they're more likely to have a face-to-face conversation the next time they meet. And so we call that the digital icebreaker. And for us, that, that creates the benefit where we get information sooner. So when we go back now to what we talked about earlier on the, the National Crime Victimization Survey, where you have nationally 47 percent of the crime that occurs in america is reported that means 53 percent of the crimes that actually happened were never reported what does that tell us about crime data is it really accurate i mean if we're only getting less than half of the the actual reported crime again when we start talking about crime statistics and crime data this is the crux of the matter this is where it gets down we're better served by having more information that might not read well in a headline. It might show that, hey, your property crimes are up, your violent crimes are up. Well, they might not necessarily be up. It's just that we've created better, a better relationship with our community, and they're actually reporting things to us uh, that are occurring. That allows us to intervene. When we don't know, there's not much that we can do to help. The earlier we know, the more that we can do to intervene. So that's where it comes back to that, you know, when we, the, the data and how you can massage data to really get any outcome you want. And so I, I've had conversations uh, with some of our local media representatives about this very thing. I don't necessarily think that it's a good idea to measure the success uh, of a police department based on, uh, about crime numbers. Do you have to take that into consideration? Absolutely. But if, it, you know, if, if someone tells me tomorrow that, the the level of success of your agency is going to be determined by the number of traffic tickets you write, the number of arrests that you make. Um, you know, then there's a simple solution to that, and and it's you know as anyone knows, it's easy to go out and you, you don't have to go to any intersection in uh, in the city right now and watch people run red lights. Can the police stop all of that? No, we can't stop all of that. We need individuals to be accountable for themselves and to understand that watching my smartphone as I'm driving down the street is not a good idea because I'm going to run through red lights, and especially if I'm going too fast and bad things are going to happen there. Uh, Can we write some traffic tickets there to influence that behavior? Yes, that's when we want to write traffic tickets. We want to write tickets in those times that we know that's gonna have our best opportunity to change behavior to make that intersection safer. Um, And so it's the same thing with arrest. Can we arrest people in a lot of situations? Absolutely. Uh, We could fill the jail up um, in short order, 
but are arrests always the appropriate thing to do when there might be resources that we can direct people to? Uh, that's why we partner now with, uh, with mental health services. That's why we train officers as crisis intervention team members where they can recognize the signs of the difference between someone that's in crisis. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe they have an undiagnosed uh, substance abuse or mental health issue. We can get them into services uh, at a sooner time, so they're not out uh, creating the problems that they might be creating. Any final thoughts, Steve, on crime, crime analysis, predictors of crime? Well, there's crime attractors and there's crime detractors, and you need to identify those. And if it's an attractor, stay away from it. Uh, if it's a detractor, be by it. Before we leave, I do have a couple audience questions, and I've kind of categorized them. I think, uh, Steve, you can answer one of these, and the chief could answer one of them. So... Brian, you want to ask uh, the chief the first question? So the question is, in the last couple of days, we have received a number of complaints about unsafe driving in neighborhoods and red light violations, which you just talked about. Uh, what strategy, strategies do we employ to, uh, to deal with that? Well, we have, we have several strategies that we use. Uh, one of the things that we like to do is, is generate data to, to measure the problem. Uh, we have... Uh, a device that we can use on on many of our streets that will actually count traffic and it will record the speed of vehicles that are coming and going. So uh, it's common, especially this time of year with school starting up. Uh, you know, parents are very concerned about their children walking to school, getting across the street safely. Uh, uh, so we we can measure the amount of the, really the volume and the speed of traffic to determine what the level of of the problem is, and then also in particular what what times. There are, um, I think most of us know, uh, I think instinctively, when, when the peak problem hours are, and that's typically uh, before school and work hours and immediately after school and work hours. That's when we have our most crashes. Uh, people are in a hurry, uh, and that's when we have the most amount of cars on the road at the same time. More, uh, more likelihood uh, for those, uh, those things to occur. So we have our ComStat uh, group that we that we work with every month where we identify uh, problems in neighborhoods we have people that are specifically assigned to watch those and come up with strategies to uh, prevent and reduce those types of crimes and we also have our traffic unit so a good example here recently the the closure of of Sagamore and South as part of the restore Sagamore project yeah, we anticipated that there was probably going to be some some traffic issues that would be generated from that as people uh, look for ways around that construction or potentially try to drive through. Sometimes, uh, you know, maybe a person leaves for work at the same time that they always leave, knowing that or maybe not necessarily understanding that their route's going to be five minutes longer because they're going to have to take some streets that they haven't taken before. So uh, they drive faster and they tend to cut through neighborhoods, and that, that gets the attention of people that live in neighborhoods. They see the volume of cars increase that they don't normally see, people rolling through stop signs. So uh, we can, and like we did in this case, we, we did our best to anticipate where those problems were going to be. We put officers in those locations to try to prevent some of that before it got started. So uh, those are strategies that, that we use to help reduce those types of incidents. But, um, you know, Fortunately, uh, pedestrian type uh, vehicle pedestrian crashes are extremely rare in our community. I think the, the likelihood of those occurring uh, in comparison to the perception that they're going to occur, 
I think uh, oftentimes leads to a lot of calls to us. Sean, you want to ask uh, Steve that last question? I don't know if there's an answer to it, but. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the safest neighborhood to live in? Most neighborhoods have, when you hear about a neighborhood that's crime-ridden, it's not every house in that neighborhood. It's probably just a handful of them. So to, to be in a safe neighborhood, you have to, you and your neighbors have to be together and say, we're not going to tolerate any bad behavior. We're not going to have a house where people are running in and out all day long, all night long, doing what we probably know that they're doing. And if they're going to tolerate that, then it's going to occur. So to be in a safe neighborhood, you have to make it a safe neighborhood. You have to know your neighbors. Your neighbors have to know their neighbors. You have to function as a community. And that way, your properties look good. Your streets look good. The children are respectful. Those are your safe neighborhoods. Um, so it's there's really no bad neighborhood in Lafayette itself. There's, a, there's some residences that are bad, and there's some uh, apartments that are, have absent landlords in them that are bad. Uh, and again, we can't control those, but the neighborhood c- can help control those. So the neighborhood has to make it a safe neighborhood. Good answer, good answer. Um, so... Ready to close this uh, podcast up. Again, we thank uh, Steve Hawthorne and Chief Lanley for being with us today. Just a a few closing things that's going on in outreach right now. We do have a DEA-sponsored drug take back on October 28th, so we'll put that on social media. Those are great to keep the prescription pills out of the watershed and out of people's hands that don't need those prescription pills. Sean, what do you have coming up? I've been invited to several church meetings, so I'll be going to a lot of churches and talking to the people there. Um, I have an outreach at IU, and I will be at the Home Depot Safety Fair that's coming up. I believe it's in October. I've also started making some crime prevention. We're making a crime prevention series. So the goal is to hopefully start that this winter, and each series will hopefully only last about an hour, but we'll talk about different things like home safety, personal safety, um, out and about safety, just general safety crime prevention tips that everybody can use. And those will be free to the public, and we'll advertise those? Yes. Great. Brian, what you got going? So as you know, I'm a, a patrol lieutenant on one of our day shifts, so I have the privilege of uh, leading our, our day shift officers. We are easing back into school. Um, with school comes you know, some unique problems, uh, misconnections with parents and kids, so we get a lot of calls about uh, missing uh, kids that – may have got off on the wrong bus, were still at school or went home with uh, one of their friends. So we're dealing with that. Uh, also, we're uh, hitting the uh, school zones pretty hard, so we'll watch for those traffic issues uh, around the schools just so everybody's safe. And uh, we'll have events at Purdue coming up, so we'll deal with uh, more traffic-related issues yeah, yep. around football, football. and uh, basketball games. And, Pat, anything in, new in your neck of the woods? Continuing on the business of the city and uh, getting our getting our message out there that uh, this is a great place to live, work, and play, and uh, we thank LPD for everything that they do to continue to make it that way. And we thank you all for listening. Make sure you follow us on Nextdoor, Twitter, Instagram, and Nixel, and we'll attach the links to the to all of our social media in the show notes. So thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Squad from the Lafayette Police Department in Lafayette, Indiana. Be sure to check out past episodes and subscribe for new ones on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a question for the show, you can email it to podcast at lafayette.in.gov or connect with us on Nextdoor, Twitter, and on our website, lafayettepolice.us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Inside the Squad. Inside the Squad.